I, uh, I'd like to tell you a story this morning, at least the beginning of a story. Everyone loves a good story, and uh, especially one that's true. Someone called this story the greatest drama that was ever staged. And it uh, begins in the book of Genesis, which is a good place to begin. The uh, title, our title of the book of Genesis, actually means beginnings. It's taken from the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, book of Genesis, a third century B.C. translation. They called it uh, Genesis, or beginnings, Genesis, and the name stuck, and it's a very appropriate uh, name for that book. It's a book of origins. The uh, first couple of chapters of Genesis describe the creation of the heavens and the earth, and as the Lord puts it, as he creates, it's good. And when he finishes the uh, project, he says it's very good, very good indeed. Now, the question that we have to ask is good in terms of what or whom? And as you read through the first two chapters of Genesis, it becomes very clear. It's good in terms of man. It's good for him. It was all done for his sake. It doesn't appear that animals uh, appreciate creation. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that they're colorblind. They're not uh, moved by uh, a waterfall or a mountain meadow, except it represents something to munch on. Uh, they seem to have very little appreciation of creation around us, but we can. Someone has said, uh, we alone can share in the beauty of God's creation. He's revealed his secrets to us in a way that he hasn't to any other part of, of creation. We can enjoy it and appreciate it. In chapter 2, we're given a description of Adam and Eve's home and their habitat. They had a garden to tend and adequate water to irrigate their garden. They had a beautiful view from their veranda of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And uh, Adam had a lovely young wife, a partner, to share his uh, task, his assignment. He was gainfully employed, which uh, was just as important back then as it is now. And it was all very, very good. We have God's word for that. But there was one prohibition, and only one. There was a tree in the garden from which Adam and Eve were uh, uh, forbidden to eat. Now, you might think from, from talking to some Christians that there were lots of trees in the garden that were prohibited. There were keep-off-the-grass signs and a number of other restrictions, but really there was only one tree, and it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there are a lot of ways to look at that tree. For myself, I think the tree is basically symbolic. It symbolized something. It symbolizes the knowledge of everything. The uh, expression good and evil is a figure of speech that indicates totality. Theologians would say omniscience. The tree signified omniscience, the knowledge of everything. And Adam and Eve were told, Therefore, that they couldn't know everything. It had to be revealed to them. God would give them the ground rules. He would tell them how to live and how to make life 
more worthwhile and livable. The um, point of it all seems to be that man is limited. He can't make up the rules as he goes along. He can't establish his own Ten Commandments. He's finite. Now, there is a, there's a lot of thinking today that man can make up the rules as he goes. Uh, you may have uh, heard of S. The founder of that organization is a man by the name of Werner Erhardt. And he says in one of his writings, Rules for Life by, er by Werner Erhardt. Number one, life has no rules. Number two, it's blank. You can fill it in. You can make the rules whatever you want to be. But uh, life isn't like that. We are limited. We are finite. We aren't God. That's another point that's uh, very clear in the story. There's only one God, and we're not gods. We're dependent, created beings. And when we try to act like God, we get into big trouble. Well, in chapter 3, you have an account of the uh, great uh, enemy of mankind, our antagonist. Let's begin reading with chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent, serpent was more crafty than uh, any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? In other words, uh, is it uh, really true that God has said you can't uh, sample the fruit in the, in the garden? Isn't that like God? What a stuffed shirt. Going around uh, looking for someone who's having fun and frustrating. That's the kind of God he is. He's, uh, he's driven by the suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time. He's a sort of cosmic wet blanket out to mar life and make it uh, frustrate us from having the sort of enjoyment that we expect to get out of life. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the gardens we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that idea of being God or God-like is just simply overwhelming. It has a tremendous appeal to us. We don't want to be finite, limited creatures. We want to be God. We want to call the shots. We want to be the master of our own fate, the captains of our own soul. It's a tremendous appeal. We like it. And Adam and Eve liked it, and they ate from the tree, and they died, just as God said. Oh, they didn't drop dead. They didn't die immediately, but they began to die. And uh, something died within them almost immediately. They tried to hide from God. They wanted to get away. They didn't want anything to do with him. They separated themselves from God and fought tooth and nail to, uh, to avoid him. 
And that's what's wrong with the world today. Because we want to be God and establish the ground rules, we ruin everything we touch. That's where war and violence and uh, crime and divorce and the ruin of our environment and everything that plagues us today comes from. It's from this ingrained desire that we have to be God and to run our own life and to rule as God in the world. Paul says that's the way sin came into the world. It's by one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin and, and death passed through the, through the entire human race because all of sin. In other words, the fact that we die is simply an indication that every one of us has uh, charted his own course, We've gone off on our, on our own. That's what theologians call original sin. Original sin doesn't mean that we sin in any original ways, as I've said before. No one really has thought up any novel, innovative ways to sin. We pretty much sin like everyone else. Original sin means that we're sinful in our origins. The snake taught our ancestors to sin, taught them to believe that they were God, and that attitude spread through the human race, and it pollutes everything. Everything that we touch is tainted by that attitude. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We can do it all by ourselves. That's really the essence of sin. Now, God, because of his nature, goes looking for the man and the woman. We're told in verse 7 that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And human expedients to cover up our sin are always just as pathetic. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden and men have been doing that ever since as well. That comes from guilt. There is, throughout the human race, this vague sense of guilt, this sort of free-floating anxiety, this uneasiness about life that comes from knowing that we're not what we're supposed to be. So we hide, cover up. We don't really go looking for God. He has to come looking for us. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Hebrew is just one word, eka. It's real note of pathos in that word. Where are you? God goes looking for the man. The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate, and everybody blames everybody. The man says, the woman you gave to me, she did it. Ultimately, it's your fault. The woman says, the devil made me do it. And the serpent probably would have passed the buck on to someone else, but the Lord cuts him short. And he said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle. And more than every beast of the field on your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. 
and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. (coughs) Pardon me. Some people think this is nothing more than a, a folk tale to explain why the snake crawls on his belly like a reptile. An etiological tale is the word that they use, like Uncle Remus' story, How the Pig Got a Curly Tail. And uh, somewhere way back in antiquity, this uh, story emerged, this is how the snake, this is why the snake crawls on the ground. But if you read through the opening chapters of Genesis carefully, you'll discover that in chapter 1, verse 24, there is a description of certain creepers or crawlers, uh, creations that, uh, that have this mode of, parts of creation that have this mode of locomotion. And God says it's good. So apparently there's something far more profound in this prediction. I'm not talking about the new position that the uh, serpent would have anatomically. It's symbolic. The phrase is, you shall crawl on your belly and you shall eat the dust or lick the dust, are ancient Near Eastern symbols, oriental symbols for a vanquished enemy. We would say today, you will bite the dust. In other words, Satan is, uh, is doomed to a life of ongoing frustration. He's like the villain in the Western melodrama who skulks his way through the story saying, Curses! Foiled again! Every time he thinks he has the upper hand, he's overthrown and frustrated. So here in the very beginning of human history, when things look so grim and so dark and so bad, God says that the serpent is doomed. It's finished. And his ultimate doom is predicted. He says the man, he, will crush the head of the serpent, though in doing so he will bruise his heel. The picture of a man stamping on the head of a serpent and inflicting a mortal blow, a blow, a lethal blow to the serpent's head, and yet in so doing, suffering great pain, bruising his heel. Have you ever bruised your heel? It's one of the most painful things going. And... Uh, picture here of the great pain that this man would, would suffer in dealing this blow to the, to the serpent. Now, we're told in chapter 4 that Adam had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten the man. From the Lord. She thought this was the man who would crush the head of the serpent. But as you know, it wasn't. The man crushed his brother. He killed Abel. But Eve kept hoping. The next son that she delivered was named Seth because she said, this is the man that is appointed to replace the seed. But he wasn't the one either. And by the time Enosh was born, who was Seth's son, They've almost given up hope because Enosh's name means weak or frail or mortal man. They kept waiting for the man to come. But uh, he delayed his coming. What chapter 4 is, is is a description of what Paul describes in Romans 5 as sin pervading the human race. It's evolution in reverse. Things go from worse to worse. They don't get better. They get worse. 
Ogden Nash says in one of his poems, I define progress, or the dictionary defines progress as movement toward perfection, but most of my progress has been in the other direction. And that's what you see in chapter 4. Things just go from bad to worse. Men becoming more and more violent. Law and order breaking down. Purpose of human government perverted. The building of cities, but a description of the abuses that still blight our cities. People making implements out of bronze and iron and then using those uh, those implements as instruments of destruction directed against uh, other members of the race. And Lamech, the first of the great tyrants here who creates so much destruction, uses and abuses people all along the, the way, and the population exploding and people rubbing each other the wrong way and things going from bad to worse. But over it all is this promise that someone's going to come along one of these days to set things right. As you read through the first six chapters or seven chapters of, of Genesis, it sounds like you're reading the first page of The Statesman. It's just the way life is. And we keep wondering, where is someone who can sort this out and, and set things right? Maybe he's a, a Republican or a Democrat or a socialist, or a Maoist. Somewhere, somewhere in the world there must be someone that can set things right. But uh, we're not told who it is in this passage. Now, it is possible, going back to Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman here could simply be mankind, the, uh, the word seed in Hebrew is collective, just as it is in English, and that term has a certain ambiguity. And he, the promise could be that, that mankind will eventually vanquish the enemy. But there's a long-standing tradition of interpretation here that the he is one male descendant, someone who's coming. And so in the very beginning of this story of mankind, when things are all going wrong and people are beginning to destroy themselves and destroy their environment, there's this promise that one of these days some man, some descendant of the woman will come and set things right. Now, there are some observations I'd like to make from this, from this passage. The first is that uh, God is a saving God. He wasn't frustrated when things went wrong. It didn't, uh, it didn't inhibit him. He just inaugurated another plan, a plan to save the race. And that plan is still in effect today. He's a saving God. It doesn't make any difference how badly you may have messed up your life or how far gone you may feel that you are. He's a saving God. He can reclaim you. He's in the business of redeeming lives and setting things right. I had a phone call from a man few weeks ago who told me that he thought he had committed the uh, unpardonable sin. And I asked him what he thought the unpardonable sin was. He said, well, I don't know, but I've sinned so much and I've ravaged so many lives that somewhere along the line, I'm sure I must have committed it. And I was able to tell him that the only unpardonable sin is the sin of self-effort. 
If we insist on trying to save ourselves, there's nothing that God can do. It just ties his hands, frustrates him. There is a sin that Jesus refers to as the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but all that is is the is the tendency that we all have to reject the witness of the Spirit to the fact that the Lord Jesus is our Savior. That's all it is. That's the unpardonable sin. That's the only sin that cannot be forgiven if we try to do it ourselves, if we try to be God and run our own lives and refuse to accept the plan of salvation that God has inaugurated, there's nothing that God can do. He can't reach us. He set things up that that way. We have the right to choose, to go our own way. And if we do it, then there's nothing that God can do. But it makes no difference how far we may have gone or what we may have done. If we, if we want help, he's a saving God. He wants to save us. And I'm sure you're thinking, some of you may be thinking, well, but that excludes me because I'm, I'm too far gone. But that's not true. God's out looking for you. The second thing I would say is that he is a loving God. Very clear. He loves us so much. If I uh, created a little man out of wood and gave him the power to live, and the first thing he did was to open his mouth and sass me, I, uh, I think I would wreak some kind of terrible vengeance on uh, my little man, but God doesn't. doesn't do that. Even though man has asserted himself and, and gone his own way and rebelled, God just keeps reaching out. I've been corresponding with a lady who has been reading my column, and uh, in the last note she sent, she said, I can't stand to read the Old Testament. It makes me sick. She said, it's full of holy war and massacre and blood and, and, and greed and violence, and God is an, is an angry, vengeful uh, God. And uh, as she went on to say, the New Testament God is the God that I that I believe in. He's a God of love. But you see, you can't do that. You can't divide the Testaments that way. It's the same God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He's a God of love, God of mercy, God of tenderness. Moses in Exodus 34 describes him as the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loyalty to thousands, that is, he keeps his word, he's loyal to his covenants, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He's a God of justice. There are There is law and order in the universe. He can't let man run amok. But uh, he set in motion his plan to avert the judgment that he demanded. What what you have here in Genesis 3.15 is the Old Testament counterpart of John 3.16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. That's This is the first gospel. This is what uh, this passage in, in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the the male descendant who would crush the head of the serpent is what theologians call the first gospel, the protevangel, the first statement of the good news that's spelled out in more detail in the New Testament. This is the Son who is to come and set things right.
The third thing I would say is that we have here the first hint of the magnitude of the drama because there is a suggestion here, just a hint, just a slight suggestion that the man who is to come is God himself. If you read chapter 4, verse 1 carefully, it reads like this. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child. And the uh, New American Standard translates with the help of the Lord. But if you notice, the help of is in italics, which means it's supplied by the translators to make more sense. But literally, the passage just says, I have received a man, i.e., that is, the Lord. Apparently Eve understood more than we think she understood. She realized that the man who was to come was not a mere man. And history has revealed that no mere man can set things right. It doesn't matter what his political persuasion or educational background is. No mere man can set things right. It took a God-man. And that's the real drama. That God himself took the penalty that of necessity he must impose on man. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He became a man, lived among us, and died for us. And the first hint, the first indication that it would be God himself who would come is here in Genesis 3.15. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I'd like to read something in conclusion that Dorothy Sayer wrote in her little book, Creed and Chaos. She says, now this is not, as she's talking about the, uh, the drama itself, and she says our tendency is to treat it as something dull and, and disinteresting. But she said this is not just pious commonplace. It is not commonplace at all. For what it means is this, among other things, that for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrow and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, disgrace and thought it all and thought it well worthwhile. That's the outline of the official story, the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten. When he submitted to the conditions, he laid down and became a man like the men he had made, and the men he had made broke him and killed him. This is the dogma we find so dull. This is the terrifying drama of which God is both the victim and the hero. Now, that's just the beginning of the story, and we're going to elaborate as we move on through the rest of the Old Testament. This is what, what we might call an Old Testament theology, and many people can't think of anything duller than Old Testament and theology together. But what it is is the line of the promise. It's the idea that God himself in the very beginning of history promised to come and set things right. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what the apostles preached. That's what we preach. It's the only good news in this world today. And my question is, do you believe it's good news? 
Have you accepted this one who came, God himself, who died for us? Do you realize he is a saving God? That he not only saves us from past sin, but from present and future sin as well. He is our satisfaction. He's your satisfaction. Let's pray. Perhaps this is the first time that you understand the nature of the good news. If so, you can, can know God personally simply by responding to what he's done. We all need to stop trying harder, and we need to trust him to save us. Would you thank him for being a saving God, for loving you, for dying for you? Will you make what he did yours by simply asking him to be your Lord? Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you for dying for me. Make me the man that I long to be, the woman that I long to be. Father, we thank you so much for coming and dying for us, for being the satisfaction for our sins, for setting right what we've long struggled to set right. Deliver us from the sin of trying harder and endeavoring in some way to make ourselves more pleasing to you. Help us to simply accept who you are and what you've done and to go on counting on you to change our lives. We know we can never measure up. We thank you that it's your life that makes everything possible, even our ongoing Christian life and experience. We thank you so much for all that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. It will glorify him as a result of your good behavior. And then so there'll be no doubt, he spells out what that behavior is in verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Do you know who the emperor was at that time? It was the notorious Nero, the most vile and wicked man to, to rule in the Roman Empire. And, and yet Peter says, submit to him, pay taxes to him, honor him, respect him, show him the respect and honor that's due him. He spells it out in verse 17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now what good does it do to witness in our community to the grace of God when we're rebels in our hearts against the king, whoever he may be? That's Peter's point. We have nothing to say to the world if we're not obedient to this command. And then in verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. <clears throat> He's talking about employees today. Be submissive to your masters. Don't pilfer. Don't steal from the stamp drawer. Don't steal his time. What good does it do to witness to all of the, your fellow employees if you're stealing time from your employer when you do it? Or what good does it do if you're an employer to witness to the grace of God if you're harsh and unyielding and demanding and you're exploiting people in your employ and you're using them in order to aggrandize yourself or to line your own pockets? See what he's saying? We have nothing to say unless we as employers or employees are good in our behavior 
And then in chapter 3, in, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And down in verse 7, you husbands likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Notice he does not say weakest. The man is weaker also, is weak also. She's simply described here as the one more easily crushed by life and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. What right do we have to talk to anybody about the grace of God if we're not being gracious to our wives and loving and attentive and sensitive to their needs and living with them in an understanding way? How can we say to the world we have the answer to your home when our own homes are, are in disarray? You see what Peter's saying? And he goes on, verse 8, to sum up, that all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You see what Peter is saying? It's our good behavior that, that gives us a hearing in the world. And if our, if our behavior is not beautiful, to use Peter's term, we really have nothing to say. But if it's right, we have a lot to say. Evangelism comes very easy. And Peter says there will be many that will glorify God in the day of visitation. This, then, is what we're to do while we wait. This is what we're to concentrate on. We're to live out our lives in tranquility and purity and rest in his sufficiency and grow in his grace while we wait for his coming. Let's pray. Father, how easily we succumb to the, to the big lie that meaning in life comes from the mere accumulation of things. We're, um, we hear it on every hand. Lord, every ad tells us that one more thing will make us happy. And we spend our lives in senseless, fruitless search for something to satisfy us. When you've already told us what really matters, Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself to us and making it possible by your grace to be what you've called us to be. Thank you that we are already forgiven for all of our failures and that you stand ready to equip us and empower us to live as we should live. We pray, Father, as your people in, in this city and in our community that we'll be God's men and women pursuing you with all of our heart. And uh, we ask that we may do so in a spirit of dependence and faith and belief and confidence, knowing that the one who has called us is faithful, and he will do it. We want to give ourselves to this pursuit until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.